Hello and welcome to Minda Dialogue, episode number 309. Today is Sunday, the 6th of January, 2019. And just before introducing my guest for this week, a quick announcement that my new book is now published and available as a paperback and ebook on Amazon. It's called Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence. Hope you'll take a look. I also wanted to point out that I'm happy to feature your questions. For this purpose, I've set up a specific email, nminterdial at gmail.com, to which you can send me an audio file with your question, and I will endeavor to answer it on a following podcast. So, for this week, I'm delighted to have Casper Craven. Casper is an adventurer, entrepreneur, and speaker. He's also author of Where the Magic Happens, How a Young Family Changed Their Lives and Sailed Around the World. Having sailed around the world two times, once with his entire family, Casper draws on his experience as an entrepreneur and adventurous sailor to help companies and their leadership build winning teams. In this conversation, Casper recounts his amazing journey, some of the key lessons learned, and what business executives can take away to help build powerful, collaborative teams. It's an absolutely inspiring story. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Casper Craven, welcome back. It's not so often that I have someone uh, returning to my podcast, and especially since it's just been uh, over six years since you have been on. So, Casper, Tell us now who you are, and uh, let's let's get into your journey so far. Well, fa- well, firstly, thank you very much for having me back. Um, six years again, right? And I think actually yours was the first podcast I've ever been on. I've been on a few since, um, yeah. but uh, definitely the first one. So, the question: um, Where am I? What's the journey been? Right? Yeah. So, I think uh, when when I last spoke before, I was uh, I was an entrepreneur working in uh, in London. And uh, was running a technology business back then. And fast forward today, um, I've uh, sold that business, created some other businesses, um, but probably uh, more interestingly, I sailed around the world for two years uh, with my uh, my wife and my three children, who are nine, seven, and two. And uh, now find myself as an author and um, on the speaking circuit, uh, talking about leadership, teamwork and how to positively disrupt uh, your life. So uh, quite a significant change from where we were six years ago. So in, in, in the realm of pivots, mm-hmm. talk us through that decision with your wife and kids and leaving the entrepreneurial world to go sail around the world. What, what was that, where was that moment, that click that said, I got to do this? Okay, so it came from a point of pain. So in 2009... Um, so before, before we, uh, podcasted before the business that I was running, we were turning over about 400 grand. We were losing money and, uh, back then would have earned more money stacking shelves in Tesco's. And, um, as a consequence of that working 16, 18 hours a day in the business, barely saw my uh, wife and barely saw children. So there were arguments and money was tight and life was pretty, um, uncomfortable. And we thought, hang on a second, there must be a better way than this. And up until that point, I'd been very much career focused. It was build a business, 
and then sell it. <clears throat> and then once I've got money, I will then go and do things with family. And the pivot that we did was we decided to put family first, which seems counterintuitive when you haven't made a success of business yet. But we created a story um, of our family life that was significantly different and significantly more exciting than where we were at that point in time. And our plan was to go and sell around the world. Um, and we gave ourselves five years to make it happen. Um, and it was all about creating magical, life-changing experiences for us and our family. And here's the interesting thing. By making that decision, it gave us so much more purpose, so much more drive for life, that in the following five years, I think I became the best leader, the best entrepreneur I've ever been, and ended up transforming um, that business, creating new businesses as well. But the pivot point came out of saying, hang on a second, this can't be all there is. There must be a better way to do it and coming in it from a family angle rather than a business angle. So you and your wife had these stormy conversations. Then this sort of <laughs> yes. aha moment comes. You uh, that you you know come to Jesus moment. This is how we're going to do it. You then I'm interested in how you position that to your employees. At what point did you bring them into it, and then how did it change materially the way you led them? Okay, so the um, the way that it started is that um, I sat down uh, with my business partner and I told him very early on that this is what I would like to do in five years' time. And honestly, I don't think he believed me. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody believed us when he, when he turned around and said, we're going to sell around the world. Because I should add, by the way, that uh, Nicola, my wife, was a non-sailor. She'd been on a boat twice. Um, at that point, she'd been seasick both times. We didn't have a boat. So lots of good reasons why wow. it shouldn't have happened. Um, but what we did, we asked ourselves um, the question, how do we build a business that can run without us? And I think that's the single best question I've ever asked myself in, a, in an entrepreneurial business environment because it forced me to think about the culture of the business, about building on people's strengths, and effectively, how did I make myself redundant from the business? Because up until that point, my identity who I was, my story had all been tied to being an entrepreneur who did these things in a business. But I knew that I would be in the Pacific at some point and there would be very little I could do when a customer had an issue or we had a challenge with a staff member. So I literally had to turn the thinking on its head and say, how do we build an incredible team of people to go and do things? And I didn't tell the business until very late um, that I was going to go and step out of the business. My business partner knew. I think he only finally believed that I was actually going to do it in 2014 when uh, it was getting close to the run-up. Um, but up until then, it had been building uh, or turning the business from what I would call an ordinary business into an extraordinary business and then creating the culture where other people were doing things rather than me doing things. So that was kind of the shift we went through. Brilliant. So how, how does one go about that? I mean, let's say without explaining the why, because at some level, if it would have been very tempting to say there's a real why you need to do things differently here. Mm -hmm. In the end of the day, if they understand why, then they may be more willing to do it. You had to do that without a why. You just sort of sort of woke up one day, you know, as far as they're concerned. Oh, Casper's on his on his rocker. <laughs> he's, he's now telling us to, to do everything. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, it comes back to the, the, um, the thing we were talking about just before we started recording, which is um, people only do things for their reasons, not for your reasons. And for um, us as a relatively small business back then, we had to create a story, a narrative of the business that excited everybody. You know, I love the whole Simon Sinek thing, right? Start with why. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So we had to create our why as a business. And we spend a lot of time with the team asking the question, what is the type of business that you would be proud to create? And by the way, the bit just before that was that I had been driving things along what I would call traditional lines by saying to everyone, we're going to build a hundred million pound business. And I remember several months after promoting that mission to everybody, turning around to everyone and saying, what, can anyone tell me what's the mission? And one person said, I think it's something to do with a number. And I realized growing a hundred million pound business meant a lot to me, but it meant nothing to anybody else. So it was coming up with the narrative and the story that engaged everyone in the business. And we, took, we came up with a mission um, that our mission was to be the world's best data treasure hunters. And we came up with a dream list of clients that we wanted to work with. And we talked about the different things that each person, each individual wanted to do inside the business, the things that they found fulfilling, the things that really engaged them and really touched upon uh, their superpowers. So it really was going back to the individuals and asking them, why are they in the room? Why do they care? And building it on them rather than how it had been previously built on my ego and my, my financial targets. Beautiful. So talk us through how that was done in terms of your, your, you, 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 you said to them, let's do this together. And it was uh, offsite. You're just shooting the shit or it happened organically over a course of months. Or talk us through that element of creating that mission. And then afterwards, presumably, you had more of an individual approach with, with each one to say, well, what's your dream and how can yeah. that be part? Yeah, no, that's a great question. The sequencing is important. Mm -hmm. So the, I'll tell you the, what happened just before we ended up with that, because I started uh, immersing myself in a lot of learning about how to grow an extraordinary business. And I remember coming back with all these different ideas, um, being in various conferences in the States. And I started implementing things like crazy in the business. So hiring new staff, launching new products, new newsletters, videos, everything. And I got to the point where my business partner took me to one side and Casper, he said, Casper, you're being a nightmare. He said, if you carry on doing that, everyone, including me, is going to leave. So <laughs> I'd reached this crunch point where the business was on the point of collapsing because I was being so driven. And my, uh, my turning point, my pivot point at that, at that stage was um, my, my team basically said that you need to go and work with a leadership consultant to learn how to do things. So I sat down with this lady named Margaret, Margaret Meyer, and we did all this work around how do we engage people. And the first thing we did was around values. And you know, for me, values are the things that you know, shape your behaviors, behaviors shape your actions, actions shape your outcomes. And so we went through three half-day off-sites to agree what are our values and how do we work together as a team. And interestingly, I went into that process and I started off by saying, right, team, here's our values. And they turned around to me and said, no, they're not. <laughs> and I, I fell into the same trap yet again. You know, sometimes the message has to keep hitting you over the head, doesn't it, before mm -hmm. you finally realize it. 
And so we created our values. That was the first thing. And we created the big picture. And then we created these rituals and these habits inside the business every week, celebrating what people were doing well, rather than telling people what they're doing wrong, which, of course, is everyone's natural instinct to tell you what you're doing wrong. But I'm a great believer uh, now in, in building up on what people's strengths are and what they're doing well. So we had to create that momentum by starting with the individuals. And then the sequencing after that was then sit down and start to talk about purpose, pride, direction of where we're going. And then it was sitting down with each individual person and getting into the things that really excited each of them. So values was very much the first part of it, defining the culture of how we did things together. Uh, so, but the, the, the overall striving mission was done after this work on the values. Correct. Correct. It was values first. Hmm. And and as far you know, I do a lot of work on values, and I'd be interested to hear on how those values were described. In in, in that you know, if you put the word innovation by itself, it's <laughs> not really quite enough. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So um, yes, I remember uh, going through this whole thing of what someone described as skinny values or fat values. And yeah, if you say the word innovation, you ask 20 people, you'll get 20 different answers. So we spent a lot of time talking about each value and saying, what is it that we do when we live this value at its very best? Um, and coming up with really concrete examples of that. And then the way we reinforced that was doing values prizes in the business every single week where we were talking about what people were doing well and celebrating that with specific concrete examples. Because I remember back in my days working for a big four accounting firm, we do values for maybe half a day a year and everyone roll their eyes and say, look, I've got more important things to get back on with. And I've great belief that if you're going to do values, you do it and you do it really well or you don't do it at all because you just make people cynical and uh, disillusioned with the whole thing. But here's the interesting thing as well, because we did values um, in the business and then we took that whole concept of values and we did that at home as well, because we had to ask ourselves the question, how do we you know, get three kids under the age of 10 around the world? And we knew we would have challenges to deal with. So we decided to adopt exactly the same process. So we created a set of family values. We defined what those values were and what they really meant, and then the rituals to make sure they got embedded in the family team as well as the business team. So I, that's wonderful, which really resonates uh, with what I'm going to be writing in my new book, the oh. fact that these values and, and who you are at work also needs to rhyme with who you are at home. So the first question is, what was the overlap and to what extent is an overlap needed in those value propositions, values propositions? In terms of between family and business? Yeah. I think there's, the, I mean, I think it's a complete overlap. So I was talking about the concept of thriving and the same things that make you thrive in family are the same things that make you thrive in business. What are some of those things? Um, and by the way, we, we took um, family concepts and took them to business, and we took the business concepts and took, took them to family. Right. So a, a natural family concept is you care about people, and you make sure that people are okay. You listen to them. You build on their strengths. You take that concept of business. It's exactly the same. Right? You look after people. I think the single most motivating factor for any person working in any organization is feeling cared about. And that's a, I think that concept sits much more naturally 
inside family. Um, the same thing with strengths, building on each person's um, strengths. Um, and we have, a, have an interesting take on this. So we had to do homeschooling on the boat for two years. And I remember um, trying to sit down and teach uh, my son Columbus um, about the kings and queens of England. Wasn't even remotely interested in that. Mm -hmm. So I turned around and said, Look, what, what, what are you interested in? So he said, I'm interested in fishing. So it's like, great. We put all the, uh, the kings and queens books aside and he started to learn about all the different fish in the different oceans. And then we started catching fish and now he's writing in a journal, he's weighing fish, he's measuring them, we're dissecting them. He sets up a business making and selling fishing lures. Why? Because we focused on what he was passionate about and what he was interested in. His learning rate went through the roof. It was the same thing that we did in the business, the transformed business, by sitting down with each individual. And rather than saying, look, here's the job description, here's the role that we employed you for, what are the things that you love doing? Because there are certain things that we all naturally go towards. Nobody needs to tell us to do those things. And uh, it's getting people playing in, the, in those zones. And the natural follow-on question is, well, that will always leave things that nobody wants to do. But those are then the gaps that you recruit for. And then you can fill those gaps with someone who does enjoy doing those things. You know, I was immediately thinking, well, you know, how can someone who says my passion is fishing be useful in your advertising agency. Uh, but then I was referring back to uh, an event I attended where um, an individual, so the CEO of the company, s said to, asked all of her employees to tell, uh, to tell her what her dream was. The, so mm -hmm. what the dream was. And, and then... Uh, wanted to make sure that the company could be part of making those dreams come true. So one mm -hmm. person had this dream of going on a safari, and and so not much to do with her <laughs> work at an agency. Yes. Uh, and yet one day a company uh, out, I think it was from Botswana or something, called, said, would you do our advertising? Uh, we have no money. And so it, they, she's like, well, Ordinarily, no, but it turns out, yes. So she sent her staff member down to Botswana. Uh, they, they paid for the flight uh, and they got in return free marketing. Uh, and, and basically now, they, 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 she said, they, they get free safaris in lieu of payment. Um, anyway, so somehow it can be overlapping. It is. Well, I have a very specific example how we applied that exact same thinking in the business. So we took on one guy. And he initially joined us as a frontline salesman. And for the first uh, six months, he was closing deals. And then he completely dried up. And we sat down with him. And it's like, well, what's going on? And, you know, what's happening? And he turned around and said, well, actually, I don't like being rejected. Which, you know, as a salesman, is not a particularly good thing because you're going to be rejected a lot as, as a salesperson. So we said, OK, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I really like to be a consultant. So we, we trained him as a consultant, moved him across. And then that worked for a while until we found actually that wasn't his thing either. And he wasn't particularly great at the detail. But he, this guy had something about him, some energy and enthusiasm. It's like, you know what, I really want to keep this person in the business. So we sat down again and said, OK, well, what, what should we try next? And he said, look, I love engaging with the customers. So we moved him across to run our customer success team. And that was a role he absolutely flourished in because he was doing something he loved doing, was spending time talking to people, interacting with people. He didn't have to sell. He didn't have to um, you know, go into all the detail, but he did have to build relationships. So that's where he was absolutely brilliant. He then approached me about a year after that 
and said, look, there's this charity I really want to go and uh, work with called Noah's Ark, um, and they're children's hospice. And he said, I'd like to take a day off a week to go and uh, spend some time working with these guys. And I said, look, I can't afford to take, for you to take a day off a week, but what I will do is I will give you half a day a week where you can go and do this. So he went and started doing half a day a week. Because he was doing something that was really purposeful, really meant a lot to him, his energy levels went through the roof. He became much more productive, much more efficient in his four and a half days that he was with us. And it was transformative for him and for the people around him in the business. Again, just by tapping into the things that were really important to him, what he loved doing. So it, it does sound like this idea of giving away a tithe, um, one fifth of your one tenth, sorry, of your week. Um, to I, I don't mean to be religious, but um, mm -hmm. by by offering that one tenth, the the opportunity return is is uh, is multiple because there's so many times in a day when you know you can just fluff off, yep. and and that dead wood, uh, uncommitted discretionary energy is is not going to your purpose. Whereas if I have four and a half days to do what I have to do normally in five. Well, then I better find my own route to productivity and I end up uh, churning up more. And plus, I've got yes. a better energy because the other time I'm away, I'm, I'm doing stuff that I really get turned yes. on by. I mean, for him, certainly, he was the only person we did that with. But for other people in the business, we followed a similar route as the first part of the story with him. And they were finding things that were relevant and engaging for them um, in, in a work environment. So it's, you know, each person is different. I mean, people only do things for their reasons, not for your reasons. So uh, it's just tapping into that. So. Right. And it, but it's very, very easy to forget that. You, mm, totally. So <laughs> you, you um, I mean, that's something that listeners should also know is that this was not your first trip around the world, albeit a certainly very different trip, but you also <laughs> did go around the world before. So tell us about that experience. Okay, so in 2000, uh, I sailed around the world on what was described as the world's toughest yacht race. Um, the official name was the BT Global Challenge. So it was um, a crew of um, 18, or one skipper, 17 crew, and 12 equally matched boats. And uh, basically, we, we took 10 months and, and raced around the world. And I ended up um, as a watch leader running one half of the boat. And, um, yeah, with, with 18 strong personalities, whether you, where you're the youngest person on board, um, you have no choice but to learn quickly about uh, people and personalities and how to get the best out of people. So, um, so yeah, so that was kind of my first um, sort of, yeah, sporting offshore experience, as it were. So. And it was also where you understood that people have different motivations. And, totally. and they, just because you say, pull in the jib quicker doesn't mean they're necessarily going to do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, like sailing. Is, um, it's got nothing to do with ropes and sails. Of course, it has everything to do with ropes and sails, but it's all about people. And it's exactly the same in business, right? It's all about people. And once you start to get that fundamental appreciation of you know, what drives people, why they do what they do, then uh, that gives you, I think, powerful insights. I love the saying, you, know, you can't influence anybody unless you know what already influences them. And that will come from their inner purpose, their inner, their inner drive, uh, what, why are they there? And it's interesting. You know, so the big four accountancy firm that I used to work with um, when I, back, back then when I did the, that global challenge uh, was KPMG. And I did some work with their leadership teams um, in the States early this year. And what I absolutely loved is back in the day when I was there, I was cynical about the whole values, mission, purpose thing. 
when I was sitting down with them this time, the very first question they're asking people is, why are you in the room? Why do you care? What's your purpose? And they're going right to personal purpose first and then linking that to the corporate purpose, which I think is exactly the, the right way around to do it. Um, and, you know, I definitely got that lesson from the sailing boat and, and also indeed from the, the sailing the second time around with the children of, you know, you have to find the things that engage them and interest them. Otherwise, with three small children on a boat, they just become terrorists. So um, <laughs> it's, it, it's even more stark in that, that, that situation. So... Since I 100% subscribe to this notion of personal first mm-hmm. and, and have been living that dream, if you will, um, myself, when you go to a CEO and mm-hmm. suggest, hey, listen, let's find out everyone's personal whims and wishes, you might oftentimes get some frowned uh, eyebrows. So uh, how do you convince a CEO that this is the right way? What's the the killer (laughs) argument? So, look, I mean, the way that uh, I approach things is, um, you know, I share stories and I tell stories about things that I have found have worked for me and how and, and the different mistakes that I've made. I've made lots of them uh, in terms of my journey to, 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 to get to this place. And. Um, it's, it, for, for me, if someone is absolutely dead set that they don't want to go down this route, then they're unlikely to be influenced because they are influenced by, you know, what, whatever is, is driving them in, in that direction already. And, you know, I think to get anyone to, to change their mind on anything, um, I always think that I have to think like, like a farmer. And, uh, you know, you're planting seeds and ideas. And if I plant a seed today and expect an oak tree to appear tomorrow, the only person who's being deluded is myself, the same way that uh, you know, I educate the, the children. Um, and um, so it's just sharing uh, stories and ideas about things that can be done in a different way. And if you have a CEO and, you know, what they're doing is working for them already, then they're unlikely to change their view. Um, so this is just present, presenting an alternative way that if they're not getting the results that they want, then here is something different to think about. And, you know, there are small ways to try this first. But, you know, this type of approach, as I'm sure you'll agree, it has to come from the top down. If you have someone at the top who is cynical about this uh, uh, approach of what I might call values driven leadership, um, then people will look to them and they won't buy into it because uh, the person at the top is is not really buying into it. So I think it is something that has to be led from the top. You mentioned the word cynicism a few times, mm-hmm. and I, I can't but help but the opposite of cynicism is trust, or at mm-hmm. least it's on the other side of the wall. You, Casper, uh, didn't have a good track record of, um, let's say, I, and I don't mean this not nastily, but you know, you kept on coming back to being driven, and 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 all of a sudden you're changing. What is it that's going to allow the team to trust you this time? How do you build that trust that says, I'm going to open up to this guy and tell him about my personal dream to to have a farm at the foot of the Ingilly Hills in, in South Africa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great question. Look, the the ultimate thing for any any leader, there's it's the gap or the lack of a gap between what you say and what you do. And everyone can come out with all these wonderful statements about how you should do this thing and that thing. But the only thing that matters is what you then do after that. 
And, you know, my track record, as you mentioned, you know, I made lots of mistakes and, you know, bashed my head on, the, on those walls enough times until, you know, the penny drops that actually, you know what, it doesn't really work that way. So um, it's all about putting things out. And it's like, you know, the whole thing with, uh, with values in a business, um, if everyone says, right, we're going to do this but then their behavior doesn't follow on in the same way, then, uh, you know, that's when people don't believe it anymore. And that's when you lose the trust. So trust, I think, very simply comes from saying something and then your behavior and your actions are consistent with that. And that takes time to build. So, so in a corporate environment, as a, you know, we mentioned the sporting environment where you're on a sports boat. In a corporate environment, what action and a family environment, what actually are the differences? Where do you draw a line? Because, I mean, if in the end of the day, you know, we're a family at work, yada, yada, yada. Um, cause, you know, you still have to berate and fire and cut costs. And somehow there's a, there's a difference. How would you describe the difference between those three environments, sports, family and corporate? Um it's funny. My, my whole model of the world is I'm always looking for the uh, for what's shared in common mm -hmm. and and building on that. And so I find it very hard to look for differences. Um, and I guess that that's yeah, that's just my paradigm of the world. And that's how we transformed everything in both relationship, in family, in sporting environments and business environments by building on what is shared in common. Because the more you focus on what you share in common, that creates energy that creates momentum whereas i think if you start off by focusing on what creates differences then um, you know that kind of uh, fills fills ends up filling the space and uh, you know that creates conflict and tension i think it's inevitable that we have in, in, in the world today so um it's a hard question for me to right, answer no way. i think there's so many similarities right, that, right. that i focus on so. well that's an answer by itself but i i still think of things like the the bad news so you, you talk about, you know, focusing on the strengths, but an individual A is underperforming, child B is misbehaving. And as much as, you know, love your fishing, but, you know, that's not going to go down well, Columbus. Um, you know, how do you, how do you manage the bad side? Because it's all very lovely on one side, but the reality is there are going to be pressures and, and moments that are less attractive. Of course. I'm I mean, you know, and again, I've had plenty of those throughout my, my journey, is that you, know, you do something and you get a reaction. It's just feedback. All it is is a message to go and do something different. So, you know, we've got a, um, a reasonably dramatic story of when we had power failure in the middle of the ocean and everything didn't go to plan. And I think back, if I'd been back in my corporate days, we're, we're, I mean, just to, to paint the scenario, we're 500 miles from the nearest piece of land. And uh, we're drifting around out there in, the, in these gale force conditions, trying to figure out what to do. If I'd been back in my old corporate world, what would have happened? Someone would turn around and say, it's your fault and start blaming you and getting cross and getting angry with people. But what good's that going to do? How's that going to help? So, you know, we just sort of literally, we lived our values. We focused on what was right rather than what was wrong. We said, how do we figure this out together as a team? We sort of stopped said, OK, what, what are our options and, uh, and we worked um, through that. And of course, you know, we all have an innate reaction that is part of our, 
uh, DNA, our blueprint to focus on what's wrong, um, because it's it, it, just, just part of how, how, how our brains trained from very early on. But for me, the counter to that is this values-based system where you are starting to condition yourself to focusing on what's right and how do we deal with this challenging um, situation. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I approach that. So, so last question, Casper. I'm thinking <laughs> you come back from your seeming trip, you've sold your business uh, and you pivot to writing and speaking. The idea of coming back to corporate, I'm imagining, was far away from you. You can qualify. But then I was also thinking about your kids, because when I, having lived around the world, and when I, uh, you as an expat, you come back to your home country, it's a different home country. At least your perspectives changed. Your kids' perspectives, having seen the world, homeschooled by mama and papa, learning to fish instead of having to deal with kings and queens, uh, oh God! I've got to go back to school. <laughs> so, um, so like the the first time I sailed around the world, I remember coming back after that, and um, three months afterwards, finding myself sitting at the bottom of my dad's garden with a bottle of whiskey at three o'clock in the morning, because you have an amazing high. What do you do? You hit a low rise. And we knew right from the planning, right from day one, that this couldn't just be the adventure of a lifetime. And there always has to be another mountain to climb afterwards. This has to lead on to things. Um, so right from so we had this handwritten vision statement, family vision statement, which we had on the kitchen wall. And, you know, when everybody, anybody came to the house, they saw that and had a placeholder saying this is going to lead to new, exciting adventures. So there was always going to be something else afterwards. So what does that look like in our world? Well, we still have our boats. We keep it in San Francisco. We split our time between here and there. We still go off and have um, sailing expeditions. Um, so last summer we sailed San Francisco to Canada and back. This summer we went to Mexico and back. Um, and, um, you know, the kids, they have settled back into normal school, um, but we still go off and do these things together. And actually, you know, kids are remarkably adaptable. They adapt to whatever situation the new normal is, you know, whatever it is that your parents have, have around you. So, um, yeah, they, they have adapted uh, much more easily. And I guess I spend my life on a plane traveling around the world, sort of speaking at the keynotes around the world. So I'm still traveling, as it were, rather than sort of coming back to corporate life. So, so your wife must have gotten over the seasickness. <laughs> yes, she did. So, well, yes and no. So um, she, um, we, we found after a while the best way to deal with it, rather than pressing on through her watches, was just to sleep for 24 hours and take medication. So um, we found that was the fastest way through it. So she still does get seasick, but we know a fast food is for it now. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you one last question because it's obviously on my mind, which is the role of empathy. How do you describe the role of empathy uh, in leadership? Oh, it's right at the heart of it, right? I know this is a really important subject to you as well, Mentor. This is, um, you know, I think um, the that whole thing about understanding, caring about people and what's really going on for them. Funny enough, one of our family values is the word understanding mm -hmm. and really stepping into somebody else's world. I mean, that whole thing, you know, you can't influence anybody until you know what already influences them. It's understanding, it's being empathetic, what's important to them, what's going on in their worlds. So it's right up there. So. Brilliant. Casper, how can someone get uh, your book, uh, book you or get in touch or follow you? What's the best way? 
Yep, uh, my, my website, Casper Craven, C-A-S-P-A-R, Craven, C-R-A-V-E-N.com. Um, and then if you put my name to Amazon, uh, my book, Where the Magic Happens, will come up. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those things. So, same name, so, obviously. Brilliant. It's the benefit of having a little bit of a weirdo name. <laughs> there you go. You've got that too, right? <laughs> yeah. Casper, thanks for coming on the show again. And maybe uh, we'll have to do this a little more frequently than every six years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll probably have to do something more interesting next time. So. All right. All good. <laughs> Super. Thanks a lot, Casper. Take care, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal That you mentioned in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly. We would paint a lover's portrait with all your favorite shades.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.